0: Hi, hi, welcome, welcome. This is Metapol with me, Cactus. Today on the show, we have the start of a new series, an interview series starting with Bradley Marshall from the Defending the West podcast. Regardless of whether you agree with our guest's political views, he does an excellent job highlighting many of the historical, cultural, and geographic factors that lead people to vote in the way that they do. His podcast specializes in talking about culture in the United States, and very much highlights a deep history that provides excellent context to the political and media challenges that we face today. I'm sure that after this interview, you'll have a much better understanding of many of these cultural phenomena, and that you'll have a good time regardless of your internal politics. Without further ado, here's the interview with Bradley Marshall. Hi, hi, welcome, welcome. Today is a special episode of the show where we're going to have Bradley Marshall from Defending the West podcast. And of course, for those of you who are part of his audience, I'm Cactus True from Metapolitics. Thanks for having me. Great. So do you want to give a quick introduction to what you do on your show?
1: Um, well, I don't know, I kind of started it with the unity thing in a Uh, It's kind of multi-purposed. Originally it was supposed to be sort of for the unity movement to give a good argument for why Dan Crenshaw and Tulsi Gabbard would make a good duo for the White House. I still believe they'd be a good duo. Um, I've even been promoting like that they should be the Republican nominees in 2024. Um, But I'm also trying to defend Western civilization as well because especially this year like with some of the rhetoric it seems like there's this fundamental belief that I don't know, Western civilization and the United States, the sphere, are all irredeemably evil. And in the podcast, I kind of just talk about, I don't know, like some things where the West gets it right, some things where it gets it wrong, just trying to have a little bit more of a nuanced approach, talk about some specific cultures in the United States, talk about, uh, I talk about Christianity a bit. I used to be a preacher, so I know a fair amount about it and just how that kind of plays into the West as well and that sort of thing.
0: Yeah, so to give a bit of context there, the Unity movement or Unity 2020 or Unity 2024, as it will be in the future, is a movement for uh, a nomination process for the President of the United States, where essentially they try to have someone from the center left and the center right be selected to try to bring the country together, as the name Unity suggests, and to essentially govern as a more centrist and more kind of pragmatic approach to politics. And as a quick introduction to people who haven't seen my show, uh, MetaPolitics is a podcast that isn't necessarily centered on expressing any specific political view, but instead geared towards analyzing the media incentives and all of those political influences that are at play. Whenever you see information flashing across your television screen on a website, on social media, or in any other source. And we talk about all of those dynamics there often going into mathematics, going into psychology, going into uh, biology and looking from all of those angles to see what uh, the systems that have actually arisen from our current political environment mean for everyone who is trying to get good information out there. So very much an area of where uh, our podcasts overlap is the analysis of culture and the analysis of history that goes through a lot of people's minds when they're actually interpreting the world around them. And I think this is something where you have uh, a level of expertise that I highly appreciate because you go into some of the cultures uh, with regards to uh, Greater Appalachia, with regards to uh, uh, the New France or Cajun culture that really highlights some of the uh personality differences or some of the societal differences embedded in the united states so do you want to give a quick outline on that
1: uh sure i mean uh something i definitely noticed after this election like literally the day after um a lot of something that just really bothered me was how a lot of people were really just dismissing the trump voters and they were just saying oh they're all evil they're all racist um, or they're all stupid and i just really didn't like that argument at all And um, A long time ago, I sort of got into the idea of figuring out how to divide the United States because um, I'm from California, but I went to college in Arkansas, and I definitely noticed a very different culture. And I was kind of interested in like, okay, so what are the different cultures in the U.S.? I mean, usually we like to talk about in terms of like, you know, North and South or East and West. But then I found uh, Colin Woodward's book where he and many, it's not just a concept he came up with. Uh, sociologists and historians have come up with similar outlines in the past but it's kind of um shown that in reality our country is divided into 13 different nations um each with different histories immigration patterns uh different forms of christianity they adhere to and all of this is kind of played into politics like for example um the midlands they experienced uh religiously they're more quakers so that made them very pacifist um Staunch abolitionists. Um, they're also more uh, moderate when it comes to politics. A lot of the swing states are part of the midlands, like Iowa and Pennsylvania. Yeah. And then there's um, some other areas, like like I mentioned in two of my de- previous podcasts, um, the Appalachian culture and the Cajun culture both staunchly supported Trump. And something I really wanted to clarify was, well, one, it's not because they're racist. In fact, uh, the Kate. Historically, the Appalachians and Cajuns were far less racist compared to like the Deep South and some other portions of the country. And I just kind of wanted to outline like where they're coming from. Like a lot of their motivation for voting for Trump was more motivated out of just wanting to be left alone, kind of being sick of being told by political elites that they're evil by virtue of existing and just kind of trying to show things from their perspective and kind of show how this country like, I mean, this election was not just some battle of good and evil, like people think.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think one of the models and I definitely want to get your opinion of this with uh, your cultural knowledge. Uh, One of the models that I'm going to be breaking down and explaining further on on my show is the sort of idea of a reality bubble that people live with certain assumptions about the life around them and about all the people around them that aren't necessarily the same within the the borders of the United States. We often see this as, say, uh, the differences between cultures, between nations. It's somewhat easy to spot some of the, the differences between these assumptions between, say, France and Germany. But the same effects also play out in the United States. And what I talked about in a previous episode Uh, the culturification of reality, is how many of these cultural issues, uh, issues that uh, very strongly play a role in people's ideological view, such as abortion, such as uh, issues relating to faith, and such as now immutable characteristics such as race and gender, have really been weaponized to uh, force various uh, politicians to adhere to a specific game, to adhere to Uh, one set of narratives or the other that make it very easy to attack other institutions based on these issues instead of based on their fundamental credibility. So uh, how do you see this kind of uh, cultural escalation uh, affecting all these various groups? Do you see that as something that is happening around you?
1: I mean, I definitely feel like I see it like when I talk to certain friends of mine and I see it on social media where people just kind of live in these bubbles, I believe, kind of like you mentioned, Yeah, they really just, I mean, it's not just that they don't know about other perspectives. They, a lot of them don't even have interest in learning about the other perspectives. Um, and like even just a few days ago, I went hiking with a friend of mine. Um, he's kind of a more old school Democrat, um, very lefty and we talked about it a bit. I mean, He was saying he supported Biden uh, primarily because, um, I don't know, he thinks the institutions are good and all the bureaucracy is good. And I can understand that. I mean, I I don't agree, but I can at least understand it. But what really stood out to me of how much of a bubble he's in and how he's really being fed a lot of misinformation was when he said, Biden is good with foreign policy. And I was like, what? I, I mean, I literally started laughing when he said that because, I mean, you can look up the historic. Like historians and experts like Biden is has the worst foreign policy instincts there ever has been. He's been wrong on pretty much every single foreign policy issue possible whether it was the Gulf War the war in Iraq um, he even told Obama not to go and get Osama bin Laden like that was the easiest decision he could have made and he got it wrong I mean it's one thing to say that perhaps Biden is neutral when it comes to foreign policy and maybe be an improvement on Trump but what my friend was arguing was, he actually had good foreign policy instincts. And that just, to me, demonstrated that there are people like him who are living in this bubble where they really aren't seeing a lot of the information and it really is kind of skewing reality in a very large way. But did I kind yeah, on so my part, uh,
0: part of, sorry, uh, yeah my part I don't really uh, go into uh, foreign policy as of yet that's not something that I really cover and I'm
1: yeah <laughs> that, but, that wasn't really my point like it was more just um, okay yeah that wasn't my point like my point wasn't whether um, Biden has good foreign policy or not my point was he was being he lived in a very specific bubble where he was being told Biden has good foreign policy but as you know you can it's not hard to find like there's videos of him saying like oh yeah no obama shouldn't have gone in and, and uh killed osama bin laden and when i told my friend this he just looked bewildered he's like no that doesn't exist so I, i'm not really talking about trying to make a political statement one way or another i'm more just talking about how people really are living in these bubbles where they really aren't seeing the full story and i think it really is affecting their decisions does that make sense yeah,
0: absolutely so Without, uh, because obviously I need to do my further research on this before making a definitive statement. But without necessarily, uh, 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 without necessarily agreeing to any given kind of political statement or not, the, the political effect that you're observing, however, is definitely one that is highly present, is highly pre- present in both sides of the aisle, and mm. very much has that sort of, um, very much has that sort of uh, convergent lens to it where uh, essentially what happens with social media is because information is exchanged at such a fast rate and because uh, social media algorithms do select for things like virality, select for things like partisanship, select for things like confirmation bias, you do see this effect where in general people are more likely to believe opinions that ag- align with them politically. They're more likely to uh, support more and more uh, Influencers or politicians, etc., that align with the same viewpoint. And this is a significant problem that is creating further downstream consequences.
1: Right. It's basically just trapping people in a loop because the algorithms look to reinforce, well, basically, it's just trying to give people what they want, more or less. So if someone leans towards conservative viewpoints, they're going to see more conservative viewpoints. If someone leans towards more, liberal viewpoints are going to see more liberal viewpoints and it kind of just traps people in these um bubbles like you were saying and it prevents them from being a real conversation which is yeah so
0: looking at the sort of effect and uh and looking at the kind of political realities that the u.s is facing now do you have any plans for sort of a uh either a partition or some sort of compromise that can happen politically uh, that would allow these co- different cultures to all prosper, to all uh, look towards a better future where uh, conflict is avoided?
1: Oh, that's a messy question. It is. Um, oh, gosh. This is probably the biggest um, issue of our time like, what to do about this problem. I don't have a good solution for it. I know there's some people like Tucker Carlson who are blatantly saying, yeah, the government needs to take control, but that's a very terrifying thought. Like the government just taking control of all of our access to information. But I don't know, what we have right now isn't that good either. I mean, the fact that we have someone like the head of Twitter who no one elected and he's able to silence the leader of the free worlds is kind of terrifying. And it's definitely not something that we're talking about enough. And we're not talking about it in a mature intellectual way either. And honestly, I don't even know what the answer is. I know it's a big problem, but I don't know what the answer is. And it doesn't seem like people are taking the conversation very seriously.
0: Yeah, absolutely. The kind of scattershot arbitrary tech policy is certainly something that is problematic as well. Not just problematic to the right, but also problematic to... Uh, Jacobin Magazine, a left-wing publication, to Michael Moore, a far-left filmmaker, who have also been censored by uh, these groups. And we should be very much looking towards uh, technological and solutions that can actually apply a transparent and neutral filter that kind of mitigates the worst of technology and actually tries to ameliorate some of the positive conversations that come out of it. However, I think one of the problems that you uh, referred to there is very much what is actually restricting all of this from moving forward. And that's the idea of trust. We have a situation that we're all facing where simultaneously we feel like we can't really trust Mark Zuckerberg. We can't really trust Jack Dorsey because they don't necessarily have the most effective track record. And same thing for other, uh, uh, for other CEOs and, and uh, tech management or establishment firms. And at the same time, we can't necessarily trust either the Democratic or Republican parties to actually put regulation into place because of this. So that cuts off two levers uh, that we can actually use in order to, or that someone can actually use in order to try to uh, change the situation we're in right now. But the third one, the one that I personally have the most hope in, is very much the lever of media, particularly independent media, that can spread good information that can counteract some of the negative forces that occur right now, and that can actually uh, communicate the tools that are necessary for people to uh, take information into their own hands to actually be good stewards of their own environment, of their own feed, and solve the problem kind of from the grassroots up. Do you see see anything similar to that happening with regards to all these different cultural communities How do you think the, the tension between those areas is?
1: Like between the different nations or.
0: Between the kind of cultural dynamics, the kind of societal dynamics that many of these areas have compared to the broader goals that we might have in establishing a better media, establishing a better framework of communication.
1: Well, I mean, like you said, there isn't a lot of trust. Um, I don't know. I think. One, I think perhaps the first thing we need to do is focus a little bit more on what we can agree on and what we have in common. Because um, we're not even doing that anymore. I mean, yeah. I don't know. You even have people to the point that they're saying, like, you know, oh, America is evil. America's always been evil. It's never been good. It never will be good. Well, how are you supposed to have a conversation with that? Like,
0: where I'm are you gonna- supposed to? Go- I'm going to push back on that a little bit oh, okay. because okay. I think there is some uh, shadow boxing that is going on here where, and this is actually not just strict shadow boxing, but kind of what uh, some political pundits call uh, nut picking. Uh, very much uh, looking at the kind of most fringe elements okay, of uh, of the far left or as is also done on the other side looking at fringe elements of the far right and trying to characterize the entire party as such so I'm not necessarily I'm not necessarily sure that there is uh, such a grim vision of uh, of the country as a whole because I certainly think that the vast majority of uh, Democrats independents and uh, and Republicans all want to live in a more peaceful society, live in a society where uh, the tensions
1: are toned down. Um, okay, yeah, I, I'm glad you pointed that out. Um, yeah, I agree for the most part. Um, I do think I I am actually planning on making a podcast on another specific cultural nation where I do feel like they, while not most of them, a lot more of them tend to lean more towards the uh, framework of the country that I just said. I think there is one particular group of people that is leaning towards that more they do have a voice. I'm not saying this represents all of America, but it is definitely there and they are loud. And I see them every time I open Instagram. So,
0: yeah. And this goes back to the same cultural or not, sorry, not cultural, but the same, uh, the same communications or technological uh, restrictions that actually occur or the technological phenomena that occur with Uh, things like Instagram, things like Facebook, Twitter, that very much have filters and very much have algorithms that select and promote content that is uh, very much uh, promoting conflict, promoting division, inspiring anger, etc. And not the type of content that we we would actually need to de-escalate the situation. Looking at uh, some of the changes that we can actually push forward together, one of Uh, something that's very much shared by my podcast as well as by many people over at Unity 2020 or Unity in general is the idea that we need to uh, avoid some of the distractions that both parties are putting into play that uh, essentially make information more expensive. So the model I talk about here is that uh, information has kind of three types of costs. It has a monetary cost, which now is dripping lower and lower to zero and no one can do much uh, about that. There is a time cost, the amount of information that you actually need to get through in order to try to find a fact to try to actually confirm an idea and uh, various establishment media forces as well as various kind of more fringe media forces are actively trying to push uh, just different narratives out there and increase the amount of information that may be inaccurate to actually decrease Uh, to actually decrease the ease to actually get good information, as well as uh, the emotional cost of it. So if there is active partisanship in a lot of media, if there is emotionally charged rhetoric, then the information cost also becomes higher because that's just simply not things that you want to read. You don't want to go through your day trying to consume information and all you get is negativity. So those are the three kind of points that arise up and that actually amplify those same dynamics that you were talking about. And I think what we kind of have to all agree on is that regardless of our internal uh, beliefs with regards to culture, with regards to all of these uh, issues that become polarized, we should realize that they're becoming polarized due to these effects and work together, regardless of our preexisting uh, with our regardless of our pre-existing actual stances of those issues to make an environment where it's less polarized and there can be more of a chance for consensus. Uh, Do you see that happening? uh, Or do you see some different vision of how we can progress forward?
1: It's a nice thought. Um, I definitely, I don't know. Uh, A lot of people are kind of, from what I can tell, There are a lot of people that are trapped. I mean, there are some people I have had progress with where I can, you know, show them my point of view. They actually listen, they show me their point of view and I actually listen. Um, but I don't know what to do with the people that are trapped and they don't want to get out. Uh, I mean, perhaps like the algorithm can be changed to the point where maybe it shows a different perspective every now and then that's a possible thought. Um, but, a possible reason that may not happen is um, the people who kind of control the social media are in this particular culture that I was discussing earlier where they have a specific bias and they kind of want to see it through. I mean, again, I'm not trying, I understand like not everyone thinks this way, but there is- You mean
0: on average, not necessarily on the individual level, right?
1: Right, right. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, But I think there is definitely a culture, like I mentioned earlier, where people really have this particular perspective. They really want it enforced. And I think a lot of the people, like specifically Silicon Valley happens to be part of this particular culture that I'm talking about right now. And the fact, and that's a big problem. The fact that the people with the power and technology have a specific bias, they kind of want to see it through. And they're kind of the ones with all the power. I, I don't know what to do about that.
0: I mean, collecting information would certainly be kind of a first step if we want to mitigate these effects. And I do want to kind of, uh, build up more of the, or to expose more of the insights that you have with regards to, uh, this kind of subculture. So, uh, let's, let's come up with a name for it. I'm not sure if you have one already. uh um,
1: well, I'm probably gonna do a whole podcast episode on it, but I'll discuss it a little bit right now. Okay. So, um, it's called the Left Coast. Basically, this consists of Seattle, Portland, and you know San Francisco. I mean, like, I, I think most people can agree, Seattle and Portland were kind of the places where everyone went crazy. And I don't think it's a coincidence. They all, both happen to be part of a very specific culture called the Left Coast. Um, Colin Woodard uh, describes it in his book as being founded both by the Yankees and the Appalachians. And from what I can tell, I think they inherited some kind of bad stuff from both. Um, Like two bad things they inherited from the Yankees were utopianism and um, lack of an intolerance. Because the Yankee's histor, but what kind of makes it not as bad in the actual part of the country where they have the Yankee culture is They have more of a communal aspect. So they aren't just self serving. They're always about the community and all that. And they have a little bit more of um, A guiding principle, I guess you could call it more of a religiosity. And then what they got from the Appalachian culture, um, on the other hand, was the lack of religiosity and a sort of individualism. And I think what these four things have done is they've created a culture on the left coast, where you have a bunch of self-serving people who want to create utopia, but they don't even know what utopia is, and they're they don't they think that they're very intolerant to what other people see utopia is. Does that make sense?
0: Uh, your ideas are your ideas make sense. I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I'm just gonna take a moment to think about this. <laughs> um, very mu- I think uh, we should try to look towards once again these, and this is obviously the kind of premise of my podcast: is that we should look towards what sociopolitical influences are actually leading to this uh, to oh, these yeah, dynamics not, coming. I'm up, not trying to right? deny
1: that um, social media is playing a role as well. Um, and and yeah i definitely think that's right um but like this is something uh colin woodard was asked about in a lecture he specifically was asked like with everything becoming more globalized and everything becoming more i don't know you having social media and everyone being exposed to more things shouldn't the nations be disappearing he actually said no it's the opposite like people in these specific nations are actually kind of doubling down and are more likely to think um uniformly in the beliefs of this respective nation they are than they had in the past. So I think these things are actually kind of working together. Like the social, like the social media where it's continually exposing people to their uh, perspectives and it's causing these nations to become more solidified in their beliefs.
0: Yeah. And I think what's important is that the fundamental myth of, the modern hyperconnected media is that it makes information easier to access yeah. it actually makes information much harder to access by by essentially like filling the tubes with junk right by actually amplifying some of these negative effects and not only that by making it actually more difficult and more time consuming to access good information and to actually reduce the trust and undermine the trust that you can have in many of these kind of scientific outlets that have very much kind of lost some part of their credibility due to having to take various political measures to uh kind of reduce their fidelity uh but returning to the idea of this kind of left coast culture and i want to make sure that we uh we make sure to separate kind of bad actors from uh from the general uh, from the general public much like We want to make sure that we do the same with regards to uh, fringe elements on the right, for example. Of course. We don't necessarily want to kind of lump that in with like kind of everyone who lives in that area, right?
1: Yeah, no. I mean, and it's not true. I mean, my mom's from Seattle and half my family's from Seattle and they all voted for Trump. So it's not like everyone is the same in this respect. But um, I mean, of course, everyone's an individual, everyone thinks differently. And this, I'm not really meaning this to be like, oh, if you. Live in San Francisco, you automatically think this way. If you live in Portland, you automatically think this way. But I think there is definitely this mentality that happens to be very prevalent throughout these areas and is taking hold or at very least this narrative happens to be taking hold in this, these particular portions of the country more so than other portions of the country
0: yeah so yeah i just wanted to get it on the record and just like give me a simple uh, let me know if you have any disagreements with this but we want to make sure that uh we emphasize that we are uh or that you are attacking the ideas or the ideology that is coming out of this not the individuals involved
1: no 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 i'm there's i don't even know what individual i'd be attacking i mean and this move. it's just a bunch of ideas that are bad and I'm saying that they happen to be taking hold in particular portions of the country more so. And I think this isn't something people can really disagree with. I mean, after like the George Floyd protests, like it was one thing when or, or the protests um in general happening this year. It was one thing when they took place in Minneapolis and Kenosha because that's where shootings actually occurred. But it doesn't explain why they happened in Portland and Seattle more so than other cities.
0: Yeah, I mean, I mean, once again, I'm not sure. Uh, yeah, I'm not sure whether this is necessarily, say, a negative thing in the abstract, right? That protests aren't kind of like protests aren't de facto bad, obviously. Well, the particular
1: uh, but- nature of these protests.
0: Okay, uh, so elaborate on that.
1: The particular nature of these protests to where you have autonomous zones set up in the middle of Seattle and Portland, to the point where when Douglas Murray, a journalist from the United Kingdom, goes through Portland and says, wow, this is a third world country.
0: Yeah, that's very much That's very much the kind of worst case scenario, at least so far that we've had. Again, but,
1: I, yeah, again, yeah, I'm not looking. like... This is everyone in Seattle and uh, Portland, but I am saying like these things are happening. They happen to be happening here. Not everyone is thinking it, but I, I mean, am I making sense right now. Like,
0: Yeah, I think I understand what you're trying to point to. You're trying to pro- point to uh, the general uh, self destructiveness or the general combativeness of these uh, Of these subcultures and of these uh, ideologies that are very much amplifying negative ideas. Very much amplifying uh, ideas that aren't actually beneficial, even to the problems that uh, they attest to be solving towards. So, uh, exactly. what part of this culture do you think uh, translates towards policy, or translates towards some of these uh, some of these measures that may be damaging, or some of the uh, proposed ideas that they espouse? what is the kind of direct link that you get from the utopianism uh individualism and intolerance that goes to uh goes to that manifestation in reality
1: well um i'm trying to put it into words um for example there is actually a movement called cascadia where they want oregon washington and british columbia to become its own country And it would primarily be about um, environmentalism. It'd be about, um, you know, specifically, you know, protecting the earth and all that. I'm, I'm not saying that's bad. Um, I'm just saying, like, well, I mean, obviously, we should be doing good to protect, good things to protect the earth and all that. It's just the, I just kind of am suspicious about some of the motivations people have behind it. I don't think a lot of them are doing it for the best of intentions. I think a lot of the policies, not just environment, but some of the other policies they're saying, I think look good on paper. And I think um, you know they have the best intentions, but when perhaps you try to show them, well, try to discuss with them, oh, maybe this wouldn't be the best, maybe we should do it this way. I don't think they're very willing to listen because I think they care more about having it come from them and having it look good than actually, coming about with the best solution. I'm not saying this is what everyone thinks, but I'm thinking that type of mentality is a bit more, well, I'm trying to word this right. I'm saying that this type of mentality where you have this utopianism, you don't necessarily have a guiding principle for this utopianism, and you're not necessarily doing it from a communal aspect, you're doing it more from a, oh, I'm gonna change the world, I'm gonna make, a difference kind of perspective
0: yeah so i think i want to push you a little bit more on kind of nailing this down uh because very much we've we've operated at very high level or very kind of abstract ideas of what we're actually describing as part of the left coast so what exactly are those kind of policies are those kind of uh, those measures that they're pushing. I know we started with, uh, the formation of Cascadia, uh, between Oregon, Washington, and British Columbia, Canada. Uh, what ne- else necessarily is, uh, is attached or is, uh, mostly, uh, correlated with this movement?
1: Well, you could see just, you can kind of see from, uh, some of the policy demands of, um, the autonomous zone in Seattle, They were saying like, we want segregation or some forms of segregation, at least not like blatant segregation. Um, they were asking for vegan products, vegan foods. Um, I think they're far more likely to, um, enact policy where you have to refer to transgender people by their supposed pronouns. Um, Trying to think. Um, I don't know. Like, I actually had a friend. I lived in Seattle for a bit, so I was able to see, like, on Instagram, some of the things some of these people were proposing: um, defunding the police, uh, less police o- overall. Um, um, environment's pretty important. Like I said, that's one of the fundamentals of the Cascadia movement. Um, Is that enough? Um, I'm trying to think of more. but Yeah,
0: Yeah, that sounds good. So that already gives us a fundamental base to kind of look at. Because, uh, I mean,
1: I'm not necessarily saying like some of the things that they're proposing are Well, again, it's not like we can't discuss some of the ideas that they're saying. That's not really my point. Um, My point is more, I question their motivations for why they're doing it. Um, Because I think they think they're doing it out of virtue, but I, again, I don't think there's many of them that are willing to have discussions on perhaps how else can be done. Like, for example, in Portland, um, the mayor just kept making concessions after concessions after concessions for what the people were wanting, and yet they still kept acting like it wasn't enough.
0: Yeah, so, okay, so I think we're definitely making progress here.
1: Okay, good. Good.
0: (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. So with regards to a lot of the type of uh, policies that are actually being proposed here. One of the things that you talked about was them uh, not necessarily doing, or one of the things that you uh, kind of uh, outlined was a general belief that they weren't necessarily doing it in good faith. Now, I think that in of itself is one of the fundamental, uh, one of the uh, most pivotal questions that we have uh, in the twenty first century, because essentially much of their uh, combativeness from many interactions and from uh, some pretty good reporting out of uh, out of uh, the Toronto Star, which is a major newspaper in Canada, is that there is a high level of mistrust within these sort of activist communities themselves, where they believe that not only are people on the opposite side of the aisle, but also uh, establishments, Democrats, establishments, uh, apolitical officials right. are also acting in bad faith. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the things that I believe has been highly underreported is the prevalence of kind of anti-CDC. And I'm not saying that any criticism of the CDC or any criticism of, uh, of how COVID measures were handled is necessarily a bad thing, but there's actually a strong kind of anti, uh, anti-establishment or anti-intellectual uh, uh, sub movement in a lot of this activism that occurs and I think what this boils down to is a combination of the f- failing of trust and also a combination of these institutions not necessarily living up to uh, living up to uh, any sort of kind of informational uh, informational common ground that is a place for everyone to stand on. If you look at the disagreement, between say uh, the major cable networks in the states, there is this fundamental kind of chaos that occurs where you're not necessarily sure uh, you're not necessarily sure who to believe with regards to people who are uh, much more ideological and specifically with regards to some of the issues that these groups are kind of propagating. With regards to uh, race, certainly, there has been, and this is something that I've uh, documented on my podcast, There has been a long record of actually following many conspiracy theory tropes and following many kind of anti-intellectual traps that, and that is present within much of the mainstream media. One good example that I talk about is correlation versus causation, and I actually talked about this on another interview that I did recently, uh, where there is a fundamental problem with correlation versus causation when people are looking at jobs in Silicon Valley or looking at uh, universities or colleges or looking at uh, various board positions, when they say that, oh, this board or this university or uh, or this kind of career field in tech should, quote unquote, look like America. And there's actually a real kind of nativism there where they have this kind of gut instinct to actually enact, as you said, segregation or other discriminatory measures uh, towards people who are uh, more overrepresented in those areas because they don't understand correlation versus causation. What is actually happening here is that some of these uh, high paying and uh, socially valuable positions are very much fueled by immigration. You have specific visas designated for uh, tech workers, H-1B visas, Uh, much of which are allocated towards tech workers and similarly study visas for many of these high-performing universities and if you actually look at the world particularly the world with a robust education system the world is much more disproportionately Asian and because of that you see a high prevalence of Asian students in many of these institutions and same thing with uh, the domestic and domestically uh, allocated uh, students positions because many of those end up being immigrants End up being immigrants who are selected to actually enter the country because of uh, high status or high kind of uh, education uh, backgrounds, and that also passes onwards towards having a positive influence on their children. So, actually, looking at some of these mitigating factors, looking at those kind of uh, scientific explanations to some of these issues, actually gives you a lot more information than the kind of 1st level political take i think with regards
1: sorry sorry, go ahead ahead. well i think it could also be said that perhaps um you mentioned that people are seeing failings and they're reacting and they're reacting to it but it could also perhaps be said that the failures are maybe being exacerbated perceived as maybe larger than they are by social media does
0: that make sense yeah almost everything is Uh, sort of amplified. And I think what we have to do is we have to focus on uh, some of the measurable data. And I'm not saying, once again, that uh, many people kind of make this misinterpretation. Whenever I call out uh, any political group on the left or any political group on the right, when I call out this uh, nativism in tech activism or in kind of like the racial activism, I'm not necessarily saying that any claim of say uh, uh, of say discrimination, particularly with regards to historic wealth, uh, isn't necessarily true. I'm just pointing to one specific instance of the phenomenon occurring where people are mistaking correlation for causation. Uh, and I think one of the core kind of ideas that we have to have, going back to the idea of trust and going back to looking at how people grow to believe these sorts of counterproductive policies uh, is very much based on the idea of uh, quote unquote fit ideas where you have uh, ideas that aren't, aren't necessarily uh, productive or beneficial, but that gain more prominence in, excuse me, that gain more prominence in social media because there is some other aesthetic feature about them. That makes it very easy to either uh, trigger an emotional reaction, to uh, activate partisan identities, or to activate uh, those sorts of uh, tribalism tendencies, such as some of these slogans. And I think that even in recent times, this has actually been more successfully utilized by the right wing as opposed to the left wing, although that may change going forward.
1: Yeah, I'd agree with that. Yeah, the right wing is definitely doing a lot of uh, like, oh, they're communists and stuff like that. And I think it worked a little bit. Yeah, but
0: going back to like the connection, I think, and this is, I think, the one of the great things that you do is that you draw kind of a direct line towards some of these personal beliefs and some of the architecture of how one views their life uh, to these uh, ultimately political beliefs and to these uh, further ideas. So I think that's kind of very much where I want to pick your brain here, is how uh, this utopianism actually leads to these uh, kind of defunct
1: policies. Well, again, um, what kind of made, the Yankees' sort of vision of utopianism a little bit more grounded, I believe, was a sort of religiosity. They knew that there was some sort of line that they couldn't cross because they had some grounding principles. But I think what kind of makes the a lot of the cultural aspects of the left coast a bit more dangerous with their utopianism is they don't exactly have a line where they feel like, oh, I've crossed a line, I, I have to stop, I can't go any further. I think there's a lot of, I think there is an aspect to that culture where they don't think there is a line or at least they're not concerned about a line. And that can lead to some pretty dangerous things, especially when it comes to policy.
0: Yeah, definitely. Uh, looking at this sort of tie between utopianism and between uh, these fit ideas I think we can draw the influence or the inference here that a lot of this utopianism a lot of this uh, lack of lack of limiting principles uh, allows for some of these fit uh, emotionally uh, attaching ideas to then spread further right how as it and with a lot of the Uh, kind of conspiracy elements of both the left and the right. I think this lack of limiting principle is something that actually enables that to occur, because it is something that actually undermines the kind of logical processes that people undergo when they're trying to make uh, various calculations or various decisions about their life. If people are, uh, if people are thinking about, say, election security, people are thinking about uh, the ability for uh, some massive kind of covert operation to change the votes. There is a kind of mathematical uh, first principles approach that where you look at number of people who would actually have to be kind of in on the game in order to do this. And it's a chain of commands of hundreds, if not thousands of people across uh, several states, right? So yeah. you have that kind of element and you can very much draw the parallel from that to the same element on the left, which often allege, say, uh, uh, a conspiracy level of uh, racism. That often allege a conspiracy level of, say, organization with regards to uh, even very much fitting into a kind of right wing trope. There is an accusation of, say, racist deep state. Right, that's the kind of parallel that you can very much draw there, uh, mm-hmm. and. I think there is very much a need to, for all of us to, looking forward, to dig further into how uh, utopianism actually translates to that, because much of the fundamental, the fundamental kind of enigma that I have in front of me right now is that uh, people who are more utopian and these people, I think, disproportionately hold kind of college educations or higher these people might be disproportionately likely to actually think about some of their ideologies, think about their policies, and actually try to develop something out of it. However, you can see that this doesn't necessarily actually result in something productive. So how do you think that comes about?
1: Well, it's like Jordan, well, specifically with the universities, it's kind of like what Jordan Peterson's been saying. Uh, Universities no longer teach people to think they tell people what to think, but they don't teach people to be able to think and actually try to talk to people, try to question what they already think and uh, try to find the truth themselves. Does that make sense?
0: The the sentiment or like the expression makes sense. I'm just not sure I agree with that very much. Although it might be like a limited uh, it might be like a limited view because my field is mathematics. So very much, okay, so, yeah, yeah, you have to you have to kind of be able to do problems in that case.
1: Okay. And I yeah, think, no. Well, yeah. like, um, for example, um, I mean, I, my degree was in biomedical engineering. So for the most part, I didn't experience that either. But okay, I did okay. take sociology. And um, I mean, I, I went to a private Christian university. So it wasn't like there was a massive bias like you'll find in some of the other mainstream universities. But when I took sociology, there was definitely a bias they were trying to portray. Like they were definitely showing the numbers in a way where they wanted you to feel like things were very unfair. They wanted to show things in a way where you um, feel like these people are truly being discriminated against. And they wanted to talk about these anecdotes where it paints the patri, I don't know, whatever you want to call it, patriarchy, whatever you want to call it, as this evil force that is actively trying to hurt people. So I don't, so I, again, I don't think you necessarily experienced that like as well, yeah, you took mathematics. You were, you, you have to think to be able to do mathematics. You were literally taught how to solve problems. But I think in a lot of the um, social sciences that isn't necessarily what's happening.
0: Can you elaborate a bit more on the kind of on that manipulation of statistics that you experienced then?
1: Oh, sure. Um, well, they mainly just showed a graph showing how um, I don't know the wealth gap has been increasing in the country a bit. Like how I don't know the top one percent owns like I don't know maybe ninety percent of all wealth in the country. Um, they definitely were just. I mean, like you can see other videos where you can get another perspective. Like I saw one Swedish economist who basically he called it like a I don't know a cheat sheet for global economics, and he said. Um, Okay, people are continually saying the wealth gap is, gap is growing, everything's getting worse. Actually, no, it's the opposite. The middle class has been growing from a global scale, scale far more so over the past few years. Um, and then other things like that. But that wasn't mentioned at all in my sociology class. They, con- they were very much trying to, I feel like, make it clear like, okay, yeah, this is what's happening. Um, I'm not even going to talk about the other perspective because it doesn't exist
0: you mentioned in the latter case that it was the global wealth gap but uh i think there is valid reason to focus on the us
1: okay yeah there Uh, is um but okay yeah no you make a good point i'm trying to i'm trying to word this right um i I don't know I, i don't know where i'm going with this um
0: Do you think there might be kind of a, uh, and this is something that's actually very hard to identify inherently, but uh, I think that if I were to kind of steel man this argument, it would be that there's a kind of bias by omission here with regards to uh, any information that's not presented or the focus of uh, inequality itself, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, of kind of spending more time on one subject area as opposed to another.
1: Right. Yeah, I'm, I'm not necessarily thinking the teacher was biased, but um, I don't know. I feel like just the way the information was presented, it. I feel like it made it easier to think of a certain way than perhaps having a more nuanced approach.
0: That yeah. I think, though, one of the problems that are actually uh, existent here is this kind of attack on institutions based on uh, based on these quote unquote similarities because if you actually just look at information and compile like a subsection of information, if you cut like say a random slice from the information that's available to look at what uh, you personally think is most important, there's a 50% or like there's a close to 50% chance that that actually uh, cuts a slice that quote unquote leans left or that sympathizes with a lot of those viewpoints. Uh, more often than the latter. And there's also a chance that that leans right. And there have been kind of accusations to the same degree of uh, some other institutions being uh, attached to the right wing. And similarly, some accusations of those institutions being attached to the left wing. So I think the point that I would very much try to push back on is to not have these assumptions by default, to say that there is kind of a... uh, there is a possibility that it is, and in my opinion, it's a very high possibility that this is just kind of how the cards uh, cards were dealt, right? Do you think that's a possibility?
1: Well, um, okay, again, like, I, I was specifically talking about, like, you know, my class I took at a private Christian university in Arkansas. So I'm not necessarily saying there was a bias there but Jonathan Haidt has talked about a bias on a more global scale and he specific and the work has actually been done on this. Like apparently, um, I think before in the, before the nineties or something like that, the proportion of, um, conservative leaning to progressive leaning teachers was like, Oh shoot. I forget the exact number. Um, it was like maybe three to one or something like that. Um, a number that was, you know, I mean, about what you'd expect, like, I mean, still progressive leaning, but still having a conservative voice in there. But what he said is the modern numbers are is more like uh, 14 to one or 28 to one something far more extreme. So I think there. Again, I'm not saying that this is how it is with every class like in every university, but there does seem to be some work that's done that has shown over the years. Um, there's a lot more there is a disproportionate representation of progressives over conservatives in universities. I mean, you can look up uh, Jonathan Height's work on this, but it it has actually been recorded a bit.
0: Yeah, I've been through uh, Jonathan Heights co- and uh, Greg Lukianoff's "Coddling of the American Mind" a few times, and it's very much uh, it's very much uh, work that is um, that highlights broad trends with regards to the more recent generations. Mm-hmm. Uh, One of the elements of this, though, with regards to the initial elements, is that I'm not sure that this kind of claim of uh, bias on behalf of professors or on behalf of staff, I think that, or sorry, I should make this clear uh, that I want a delineation between uh, internally held biases and uh, the kind of, uh, trickle down that that might have onto the actual classes because I'm very, very arguingly opposed to the, uh, kind of end of journalism narrative that says that, uh, journalists fundamentally can't act in a neutral way because, uh, there are, uh, inherent biases. And I think I want to avoid that same kind of thing occurring, uh, when we talk about college professors. Uh, but with regards to the ongoing kind of polarization of, uh, along cultural education line, or sorry, not cultural education, sorry, not cultural education lines, but rather, uh, college education lines, there we go, uh, is, uh, this, vi- uh, this kind of mental health crisis that is, uh, and that is, uh, rippling through Uh, Generation Z rippling through Millennials. That was well documented in uh, Jean Twenge's iGen, right? You had a situation where the cultural traits of many children growing up uh, trended in a particularly uh, negative direction with regards to decreased responsibilities. uh, Children tended to uh, have around four or five years, uh, four or five years later, to get a job, to get a driver's license. and lower levels of uh, conflictedness, as opposed to their parents. So less levels of kind of inner conflict, less less levels of uh, kind of independence, and also uh, a much higher likelihood of mental illnesses, such as uh, depression or such as anxiety, with 60% of Generation Z suffering from some sort of anxiety symptoms and 40% suffering from some kind of depressive symptoms. So do you see a connection here between those types of broader uh, sociological and public health effects to some of this uh, left coast ideology or some of these effects that may be playing out here?
1: Um, I'd say it's certainly possible. Yeah, I would say definitely that's a factor. I um, forget what historian talked about it. He said basically like, The phenomenon we have like with college loans and all that and like um, the idea where I know kids come out of debt with these degrees will come out of college with massive debt with these degrees and then they have to go and work at Starbucks I think that's definitely something that is fueling this but like I said um, I mean you could say this is happening like across the country but in specifically left coast cities you had this extreme reaction to some of the things happening this year to the point that they created autonomous zones in the middle of these cities and that didn't really happen in other parts of the country i mean yes uh the resentment is something that i think is something you can find in most nations of the country and most cultures but i don't think we can just ignore the fact that the autonomous zones were set up in two cities with which happen to have very similar cultures, very similar histories, and happen to be part of this left coast nation. I'm talking about.
0: Yeah, I think one of the factors that may be at play here is not just the kind of uh, cultural cultural background of the of the uh, protesters or of uh, the people who are trying to set up these zones, but also of the background of the administration and of the governments that are actually at play here, because uh i think it was fairly credible reporting i believe it might have been on the hill but there was some source talking about an attempt to set up an autonomous zone in new york that failed due it to uh, interference in right
1: yeah.
0: ah, i see yeah. so do you think that there's kind of a administration or a governance side to this
1: oh yeah that's definitely a factor um they they definitely let it happen in uh seattle and portland uh, the mayor literally just called it the summer of love that whole thing that happened and when they attempted to do the same thing in Asheville, they just didn't let it happen. Um, so yeah, I would say there is an administrative failing and I don't necessarily know the backgrounds of the, administ- the administrators of Portland and Seattle. I don't know if that's the cities they're from. Um, but yeah, that there's definitely something about those cities where setting up an autonomous zone wasn't, rejected in the same way it was in other cities where they attempted it so it is a little peculiar
0: yeah going in a different direction now mm-hmm. uh, i want to talk about this strange kind of almost paradox that you have with regards to uh the left coast which is that we highlighted a utopianism or uh, and uh, individualism as some of the core traits, which seems to be somewhat conflicting with regards to the past ideas of utopianism, typically involving kind of uh, uh, mass cooperation, uh, almost some branches of it involving collectivism. So how do you see the tension between individualism and utopianism as you've identified it?
1: Well, Oh, no, like I said, I feel like a lot of the drive for the policies is more about, well, kind of a virtue signaling, kind of a attempt to be perceived as righteous instead of more just wanting to actually have discussions with people and come to the proper conclusions.
0: Yeah, but we already kind of... The same thing I pushed back on this with regards to before is that these the things of, don't arise. Trust, yes. Yeah, these don't arise out of nowhere, right? These arise from kind of emergent dynamics. They arrive from these incentives that are at play that actually condition people or that condition kind of messages that get promoted to be of a certain nature, right? So why do you think uh, the utopianism and individualism actually create incentives for those types of ideas?
1: Well, because, um, well, it's kind of like you just said, um, I mean, like you can say there is a distrust towards the systems, which has been fueled by, you know, some very legitimate complaints that need to be made and the social media, and it does seem to have been taken hold in a fair amount, more so in the left coast than particular other, than other portions of the country, I think because, um, I think just on a psychological level, people really have this need to feel like they're making a difference, to feel like the, there's just a, there's a very deep psychological appeal to revolution. Like, I mean, think of the most popular star uh, movie series out there, Star Wars. What is it about? The rebels fighting the empire. There, yeah. There's definitely a very deep psychological desire for that kind of mentality. And, um you know again like it's something that kind of separates um, Yankeedom from the left coast because they're they have a lot of similarities um, Yankee know Yankeedom uh, definitely influenced the left coast a lot but again the way they would kind of they were in Yankeedom you have far more trust of the government you have you don't have that distrust that you clearly have in the left coast um, it's I'd probably have to do a little bit more research on why. I mean, part of it might be because, um, I don't know, they're more religious. Um, They were descended from the uh, Puritan Englishmen who were far more likely to be okay with government. I mean, John Adams came from this particular portion of the country and he was considered like the most um, reluctant of all the patriots. Like the only reason he ended up uh, doing it was because um, the English were infringing on property and he felt, and you know, he didn't like the idea of taxation without representation. That to him was a line that was um, being crossed and that caused him to, uh, you know, end up rebelling. But yeah, so overall, it seems like Yankeedom really kind of is more trustful of government and the left coast isn't. And that might be where the Appalachian culture comes from because as I discussed in one of my podcasts at length, the Appalachians was basically populated by people who were, you know, screwed over every which way by government for centuries whether it was the um you know the lowland scots and the northern english who were continually living in uh, war-torn uh, britain like being caught in the crossfire from the highland scots and the uh english aristocrats or the uh modern appalachian culture where they were basically you know caught in the crossfire between the fight between the uh you know Yankee elites and the Southern aristocrats. So I feel like this overall distrust in government perhaps was inherited by the left coast along with the utopianism of Yankeedom. And I think this is maybe fueling the current uh, political political crisis we're seeing.
0: Yeah. Uh, How do you see, uh, once again, moving to a different topic, how do you see the kind of cultural lines maybe even redrawing themselves or helping to redraw the new party lines in what is often called the realignment the discussion of uh, demographic trends such as uh, southern african americans and particularly young latinos moving towards conservatism and with more uh upper class uh suburban uh white pe- white women and upper class suburban white men to some degree uh to a smaller degree uh, moving towards, uh, moving towards uh, liberalism or moving towards the Democratic Party?
1: Well, I can't speak to the um, trend for um, more uh, urban people to, to uh, move towards uh, progressivism, but I can speak a little bit to why I think some people are moving more towards conservatism. Because like, um, uh, I think it was Miami, Trump actually ended up getting a bunch of points. And that's another particular culture that um, it's called part of this it's part of the spanish caribbean uh colin Werner doesn't actually talk about this in his book, but um this particular portion of the country you have a lot of people from communist regimes like Venezuela and Cuba, and a lot of them ended up voting for trump like i think fifty five percent of all Cubans ended up voting for Trump, which is quite quite a number like that's not something we 've seen in a long time I think the biggest um fueling of that, of course, is the fact that the modern Democrats have kind of been portrayed as leaning more and more towards socialism. I'm not saying that that is necessarily what they're doing. Like, I I don't, I mean, I don't know, right when Biden began picking uh, members of his uh, crew, he picked a big oil wig to be in part, to be part of it. So, but I don't know, with how things are being portrayed, uh, the Democrats definitely are being portrayed in a light where you know, people from former socialist regimes like Cubans, Venezuelans, and even Nicaraguans are not going to be, are going to be far more likely to go for a Republican than a Democrat.
0: Yeah, an interesting analysis of this that I had, uh, or that I seen about this from conservative commentators Sagar and Jetty was Mm -hmm. that, uh, The connotation of socialism wasn't actually drawn between things like more progressive economic policies because uh, things like higher $15 minimum wage, which was passed by uh, Passed by popular vote on uh, in Florida, for example, and also even on even more kind of left wing economic issues such as Medicare for all. There's actually better polling in uh, Florida than there was for Biden himself so and uh, what uh, Sagar and Jetty uh, then kind of drew the connection to was that uh, the the most powerful attack that actually landed with the uh, socialism idea wasn't actually the kind of redistributive aspects of socialism, but rather the kind of top-down, more, authorita- more authoritarian tendencies of socialism. Uh, so what do you see in that analysis? Do you see uh, a similarity with what you're talking about? or uh, is there something that goes into a different direction?
1: Um, I'd say that makes a lot of sense. Um, I can definitely see Florida leaning more towards Medicare for all. Um, part, partly why is, um, I mean, it, it's not just Venezuelans and Cubans in Florida. Like when I went to Miami, like it was literally like the cap, you could say it's like the capital of Latin America because you have people from literally every single culture in all of Latin America coming there. And one of the things you find in almost every single Latin country, I believe, is some form of Medicare for all. Uh, not saying it's good, but they have some sort of uh, Medicare for all in most Latin countries. So I can see why Florida would lean more towards that. But um, yeah, the idea of the authoritarianism, I definitely think that he's onto something there. Because I forget where I was hearing this, but I've been hearing some people like from Venezuela say like there are some, just with some of the rhetoric that's being thrown out with some of the democratic candidates it's very, there's some parallels that can be drawn to what they experience in their respective countries. So yeah, yeah that makes a lot of sense what you just said.
0: Yeah. Uh, do you have any guesses with with your knowledge of these different cultures of uh, the kind of suburban shift towards Joe Biden uh, in many areas, such as uh, suburban G- uh, Georgia, which may have more kind of minority voters in those suburbs, or v- as opposed to areas such as, as uh, such as Arizona or such as uh, such as um, sorry, such as uh, Virginia, which may have more uh, white voters shifting in that direction. What kind of uh forces or cultural uh and cultural uh tendencies do you think are at play here
1: um well specifically for virginia um it's actually split between two different nations like the western portion is completely Appalachian, and they were red as can be but the eastern portion was tidewater and that um Tidewater was founded by English lords uh, many, many years, like hundreds of years ago. They wanted to form more of a hierarchical, um, kind of feudalistic society. Um, so usually they tend to be more okay with authoritarianism as well. So that could possibly be a factor for why um, Virginia is leaning more Democrat. Um, as far as Georgia, that that's an anomaly to me Uh, Georgia is like one of the deep South states. Um, uh, The deep South has kind of been, I don't know. The deep South is kind of a weird thing to analyze because one of the things that always characterized the deep South was the apartheid state. The fact that there was this separation between, um, it it wasn't even just racial. Well, no, it was racial, but it wasn't necessarily just white and black. Um, Colin Woodard even talks about how uh, the people of the deep South were, Um, founded by the people of Normandy, and this idea of a Greco-Roman representative democracy and the fact that, and the idea that the deep Southern aristocrats were not just superior to African Americans, but they were superior to the Anglo-Saxon northerners as well. So the fact that that narrative has kind of been dashed um, a fair amount like over the past few decades I don't know. The Deep South is kind of going through some weird trends, whether it's Georgia going more democratic or Memphis, which was very Deep South actually being very democratic. Um, So I I don't really know what to make of that. Uh, I don't know if anyone's really doing any work to figure out what's happening in the Deep South and how things are changing, but there definitely is something happening.
0: One dynamic uh, dynamic at play here might be immigration because there is actually, I think Georgia... I don't remember the actual citation on this, but I think Georgia is one of the most uh, immigrated to states. And much of the immigration were from states like California, were from states like New York that may have had more uh, uh, more uh, economic policies that were detrimental to those who emigrated from those states and who emigrated to uh, the suburbs of Georgia uh, in order to kind of pursue a new life, but maybe held similar political beliefs. So that's kind of one uh broad explanation that was present in some of those uh some of those political analyses post election but this still doesn't understand still doesn't uh, understand completely how the general trend of georgia from 2016 to 2020 actually occurred so do you think that could be a plausible explanation
1: yeah i think there's definitely some weight behind that i'd have to do more research on um, the exact immigration patterns and the voting patterns um, I don't really have any anything else to say about Georgia I haven't really researched it that much um, your explanation I think is about as good as any other explanation anyone can come up with as far as I know um, so yeah
0: Yeah, I don't want to take credit for that that's something that is reported yeah, no, but, kind I, of adosium, no, but yeah okay uh, so I think it's about time to wrap up and I want to ask a very interesting question that I've planned on talking about and uh, unfortunately you're not going to get to know this question until we're off the air or know the answer to the question, to be clear. Uh, but I'm going to read a portion of a speech and then I want your answer on whether it sounds left-wing or right-wing. Okay? okay. Consequently, what is happening today can be interpreted as an attempt of the respective political leadership to harmonize relationship between the interests and achievement of the individual, that needs to be acknowledged with interests and achievement of the community and the nation, meaning that the nation is not a simple sum of individuals, but a community that needs to be organized, strengthened, developed, and in this sense, the new state we're building is an illiberal state, a non-liberal state. It does not deny funda- uh, foundational values of liberalism as freedom, etc., but it does not make this ideology a central element of state organization, but applies a specific national, particularly appro- particular approach, in its stead.
1: In all honesty, it kind of depends on your definition of left wing or right wing.
0: Do you think um, it would be closer to the Democratic Party or the Republican Party?
1: Um. Well, it's specifically talking about communities. So that kind of raises a red flag to me that it's a Democratic Party stance, but I could see it being a non-libertarian Republican talking about that too.
0: All right. That's very interesting. And with that, any final conclusions that you'd like to add? Any way to contact you that would be interesting?
1: Yeah. um, My podcast is Defending the West. You can find it on iTunes or Spotify or Most or Anchor, most anywhere you find podcasts. Um, Yeah, please check me out. And uh, I really enjoyed this conversation. Thank you for having me.
0: Great. Uh, On my end, the podcast is MetaPolitics, uh, M-E-T-A, and then space the word politics. And you can find me on Twitter at uh, at meta underscore P-O-L. With that, thank you for coming on the show. Until next time, this is MetaPol with me, Cactus.